we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to the universe next door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. This show is a ministry of the C.S. Lewis Society and supported by gifts of listeners just like you. Join us as we seek to see a generation captivated and transformed by the truth of Christianity. This is the universe next door. Today we're starting a brand new series. I would highly encourage you to go back and check out the series we just finished on defending the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, It was a nine-part series, and when I started that series, we didn't think it was going to be nine episodes. I planned for a few episodes, and the more I researched and the more I talked to uh, experts on the resurrection, the more evidence just kept pouring out. And really, it it can be defended from every angle. And so uh, go back and check out the Defending the Resurrection series. I think it'll be a huge blessing to you. And today, we're going to be starting our brand new series, and basically, we are going to be demonstrating why Darwinism is not true from a biblical standpoint, from a scientific standpoint, and from a philosophical standpoint, in addition to some other really interesting points. uh, We are going to have some of the world's top scientists on here. We're going to have people who have written books uh, on specific areas of Darwinism. Uh, such as Darwin's link to Hitler, Darwin and racism, and so on and so forth. And we're going to see why all these things are implicit in the view of Darwinian theory of evolution. If you believe your life has meaning and purpose, if you believe there's such thing as objective and ultimate morality, right and wrong, if you believe that anything really matters at all, well, then you can't explain any of that if you hold the Darwinian theory of evolution as your view, as your worldview of how we got here and why we're here. Uh, And so we're going to spend the next month or so debunking Darwinism, and we're going to have some really interesting guests. It's just going to get better and better each week, starting today with Dr. David Berlinski. Um, He is a very, not only a very intelligent guy, but he's also famous for saying things in a way that really keeps you on the edge of your seat. He uses a lot of sarcasm. He's he's a funny guy, but he's also a serious guy. And so I really enjoyed this interview, and I think you're going to as well. Uh, So let's get started. We have with us today a very prominent mathematician, philosopher, and polymath with a PhD from Princeton. He has written a number of books, including my personal favorite, The Devil's Delusion, and his most recently published book, Human Nature. Uh, Dr. David Berlinski, it's an honor to have you on. How are you today? I'm just fine. Thank you. And you're over in Paris, France. Right in the middle of Paris. Wow. Now, what are you near that we might recognize? I'm one block away from Notre Dame. Is that the bells I just heard? No, I don't think so. The bells haven't rung since the fire. Oh, but man. I can, see, I can see the river. I don't know whether you can get your camera to pan across the windows, but you can see the Seine if you want to. Wow, that is really cool. Uh, I, I would like to do that. Now, you were, uh, you're right around the block from Notre Dame. That must have been a, a pretty unique experience when it was burning. It was just horrible. It was just horrible. Everybody was unbelievably stricken. I spent the entire night. The police, of course, cr- closed down the entire neighborhood on the Ile de la Cité where I lived because mm-hmm. there was a real fear that the ca- cathedral would crumble structurally. After all, it's, it's almost 900 years old. And that would take the apartment buildings, including mine, down with it. 
So we were all restricted to the other side of the river, but we spent the entire night watching the firefighters battle the uh, the fire. Wow, that's just it was a, an extraordinary event, a sense of cultural horror. Sounds like a horrific event, and of course, I'm sure a lot of people didn't know what to think at the time. Maybe a terrorist attack, maybe an arsonist, or... No, no. I don't think anyone thought it was a terrorist attack. Almost everyone with whom I spoke came to the correct, correct conclusion almost at once. It was an act of carelessness. Okay. And that's what I think, that's what I think it was, and I, I think most of the experts agree. Somebody just flicked a cigarette in the wrong place. And because the cathedral is almost six stories tall, you have to go up and down. So the caretaker noticed the fire, went all the way down, called the fire department, the Paris fire department, and was told he had to verify the fire. So he had to go all the way up and come down again. Oh. And it's an incredible series of regulations that, for very good reasons, the Parisian fire department puts in place, because otherwise it would be responding to false alarms all the time. But they lost 40 precious minutes, and that allowed the, the blaze to spread. Oh, it's such a shame. And, of course, you saw it from a couple blocks away. We're over here on the, on the other side of the world getting this news. And so um, that, that's just such a unique experience. It was really a monstrous fire, just monstrous. Oh, sure, and such a, such a historical place. But for those of you who, for those who have not read any of your, your books, they have a good reason to to read human nature and and I actually think this book probably applies today more than it did like two or three years ago when you had written it. But for those who may be, let's say, some some young lad who hasn't encountered David Berlinski yet, why should they read this book? And and what was your purpose behind writing Human Nature? Why should they read this book? That's surely not a question you should be putting to me because the obvious answer is because it benefits me if you read it. <laughs> but, um, my purpose in writing Human Nature was to defend what I think is almost uniformly under attack. And that is the idea that there is something like human nature and that it exists and it exists in a special way. And that the arguments against human nature in favor of the infinite mutability, say, of the human, human species are in the end not altogether successful. I mean, there, there is something of a pendulum in, in these things. Of course there is. And we cannot expect any kind of certainty in argument. This isn't mathematics. But I think the attack on human nature, the attack on essentialism, as it's often called, has gone too far. It's been misguided. And it's uh, seriously overestimated the extent to which the parameters of human life can really be changed. That's why I wrote the book. Yeah, well, it's it's a very good book, um, and so I would highly suggest that you read it for those of you listening. It's available anywhere. I mean, just get on Amazon and order Human Nature. Um, and now, because we only have you for a certain amount of time, I wanted to touch on a few of your different books and concepts. Uh, we're currently in a series called The Ridiculousness of Darwinism, and so I'd like to get into that a little bit at some point. Uh, but my first question, and my most important question for you, Dr. Berlinski, if Charles Darwin were around today, do you think he would like you? Oh, yes. I'm, I'm sure we'd be great friends. <laughs> that's what I was thinking, too. Why not? My likability is well known. Sure. Sure. That's where I was uh, I was thinking the same answer. Um, now, one of the issues that seems to be somewhat of a common theme in your books 
is that scientists have sort of put themselves in this position of omnipotence almost. And, and we are seeing that play out in a way that everyone is being told what to do in just about every area of life by quote-unquote science. Um, is, is this accurate, and can you expand on that a little bit? Well, I think it's a, a rhetorical exaggeration. Everybody has this sense that there are entirely too many experts around telling us what to do. And I think everyone shares a correlative sense that the rhetorical declaration, I believe in science, or it is so because science says it so, has uh, long outlived its usefulness. After all, science is an, an enormous grab bag of different disciplines, but holds for theoretical physics, even more so for mathematics, does not hold for sociology or gender rights. These are very different kinds of gender studies, not gender rights. These are very different kinds of disciplines, and they carry quite different kinds of authority. So I, I think there is a, a sense that, yes, we have been nagged almost to death by the um, incessant claim that a certain institution in contemporary life uh, has a not only a rhetorical, but a judicial authority over what we think, what we say, what we believe, to what we commit ourselves, that it does not really, it is not really entitled to have. Yeah, I agree with that. But that said, I also think we're in an area where I think there's a great deal of frivolity. I and mean, after all, just between us, who cares if a lot of scientists feel they're omnipotent? The question is, what follows from it? I mean, if a physicist gets up and says, as, as some physicists have said, well, every physical problem will fall to the methods of theoretical physics and we will be as gods. Well, all right, let him say it. Does it really affect the rest of us in a deep and important way? I doubt it. People commit rhetorical excesses all the time, and institutions do as much. <clears throat> I think that's a really good point, actually, and uh, and and I I like that you use the word judicial. Um, that's when it can kind of get a little bit messy, I think. When when this science, sure, if somebody says they're omnipotent, who cares? Just let it go. Yeah. Anyone can say whatever they want. But once it starts kind of affecting the lives of people, I think that's obviously when when it may take a different turn. Now, I wanted to read a quote. This is from the Deniable Darwin, which I find a very helpful book. Uh, you had said, my own view, repeated in virtually all of my essays, is that the sense of skepticism engendered by the sciences would be far more, appropriate, far more appropriately directed toward the sciences than toward anything else. Um, could you expand on that thought a little bit? It sounds like something that, that caught my attention. Well, I think it's, a, it, it's kind of a general, a general epistemological maxim. Look, as I, as, as I said a few minutes ago, the sciences encompasses a great many disciplines. <clears throat> if you look at mathematics, it's unique among the sciences because it really has uh, a principled way of assessing what is true and what is not true. It's the method of proof. And it's universally acknowledged, almost universally agreed to. So we're not, not really talking about mathematics and how some lunatic wants for racial or or sexual reasons to argue that 2 plus 2 equals 5. That was an argument. That oh, sure. <laughs> but that's, that's of no interest to serious men like ourselves. Agreed. If you look at theoretical physics, you look at molecular biology or biochemistry or synthetic chemistry, the really serious, hard disciplines. 
there's a great deal of internal criticism that passes as peer review. Some of it's good, some of it's bad, some of it's corrupt because of the enormous financial incentives. What is lacking is a general sense of criticism that goes beyond the scientific establishment and that is devoted to assessing some of the grander claims made by the sciences themselves. Now, let me give you, let me give you some examples. Um, I, think, I think Darwin's theory of explanation is an exception because although it has been almost uniformly adopted by the community of biologists, equally it has been widely rejected by ordinary men and women, and those, those arguments are taking place all the time, much to the chagrin and disappointment of a biological establishment, who has never persuaded uh, the majority of Americans, say, to accept Darwin's theory of evolution as commonly stated. Um, but that's really an exception. If we turn to theoretical physics and claims involved in theoretical cosmology, for example, that the universe, together with space and time, came into being, that was 13 or 14 billion years ago, and that's the end of the story. That's as much as we know, much as we'll ever know. Uh, there's very little pushback. There's very little criticism. There's very little sentiment which going even further would say, look, you have pushed theoretical physics to a position which is uncomfortably close to the biblical position. Is that really what you're arguing? In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. The physicists, well, God forbid we're arguing any, anything of the sort. And yet the, the uncommon uh, point of intersection between a mystery as, as it's described in the religious tradition and a mystery as it's described in the tradition of theoretical physics really goes unremarked. Uh, and there are many, many other examples uh, like that. Sure. Now, do you think, I, I know you mentioned that a lot of average people reject Darwinism. And I think that that's, uh, I think a lot of it, uh, you may disagree, I don't know, but I think a lot of it has to do with religion. A lot of people will look at that scripture and say, well, uh, God created the heavens and the earth and, and God picked up a handful of dirt and, and created Adam and Eve. So I reject Darwinism. But it seems like from... From a scientific standpoint, it seems like the overwhelming majority of of even average people, just from a scientific scientific standpoint alone, would probably accept Darwinism. Um, now, if you agree with this, why do you think it is that it's just so popular? Well, well, look, we don't have really accurate, sophisticated polling about what the American people, taken one with another, really believe about the modern uh, neo-Darwinian synthesis. Those questions haven't been put in the kind of sufficient detail to the American people that one could draw very clear conclusions. My impression, and that's what it really is, my impression is that quite apart from religious objections, quite apart, there is an inherent skepticism about this story. A deep inherent skepticism that the story doesn't really add up. We can add layers to the skepticism. We can say, well, look, the fossil record and the theory, they're not really quite in alignment. Or we can say this idea of uh, human ancestry with respect to the family of apes doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Not that I'm denying common descent. Clearly, there is some commonality. But 
The extraordinarily special properties of the human animal seem to go unremarked and unexplained in this story. So I think there are many, many different points at which people will say, yeah, all you're telling me, speaking to a biologist, mm -hmm. is that the whole thing, the incredible panorama of living systems was basically one lucky break after the other. Is that what you're telling me? And the biologist, if he's honest, will say, sort of, that's what I'm telling you. And the, the interlocutor, if he's sophisticated enough, will say, it doesn't look anything like theoretical physics. How come? That's a real... So I think there's a lot of room, sure. a lot of room for, for uh, skepticism. Sure, it, that's, a, that's a really interesting point. And on the other hand, would you think that most... Uh, most physicists, whether they believe it or not, of course, I don't know their motives, um, but do you think most physicists, most prominent atheists, seem to really grasp onto Darwinism? Can you give me a name so I can okay, so sort of try and... Let's say, let me just read you a quote from, from Richard Dawkins, for example. Um, he was on an interview a couple years ago that I'd seen. Of course, he's on interviews all the time. Um, but basically, Richard Dawkins had said in regards to someone saying that the beauty of the world couldn't have come about by chance, he says, well, of course it doesn't come about by chance. It comes about by evolution, by natural selection, and that's an explicable and explained and understood process, but a lot of people don't know that it's understood. Well, I, I have to be honest, the quotation, as you've read it, strikes me as gibberish, how beauty comes about by natural selection. I cannot even begin to imagine. I mean, there are beautiful things in the world. There is a sense of beauty. Uh, we could argue whether beauty is an objective feature of the world or a subjective feature of human perception. But what natural selection has to do with that, uh, I can't imagine. I mean, the, the quotation doesn't shed a hot white light on anything because it doesn't shed a light. It, it, it's like a black hole in space. It just undulates. I can't make any sense of football. Sure. And I, I think there is a certain degree to where uh, it almost seems like, and correct me if you think I'm wrong here, it almost seems like to say it doesn't come, something doesn't come about by chance, it comes about by evolution. It, it seems to be sort of an oxymoron because I think a lot of uh, the thought behind evolution is, is really time plus chance. That's about it. Lucky breaks. One sure. lucky break after the other. I mean, biologists will say, well, mutations are, are random events or quasi-random events, but natural selection is as deterministic and as focused as the law of gravity. But that's not true either. I mean, after all, natural selection works only in a particular context. And if contexts change, natural selection will change. For example, the elephant, perfectly successful munching leaves in the African belt, uh, but transplant an elephant to a penthouse on Fifth Avenue and his way of life would become problematic. So we're talking about two different kinds of random processes. One, the mutational, but the other, the random processes involved in changing physical context, for which we have no laws whatsoever. We can't determine in advance when a physical context will change. And the product of two random variables is, again, a random variable. So from my point of view, overall, globally, it is entirely a stochastic theory. And I don't think serious biologists deny it. It's one lucky break after the other. 
Sure. And of course, when uh, I mean, you're a mathematician, so I don't I don't even want to touch this subject. But when you think of how many lucky breaks there would have had to have been, I mean, of course, I've read all kinds of of uh, of uh, equations for it that I don't remember off the top of my head. But it just seems like that the amount of lucky breaks that would have to happen are just almost inconceivable in order for us to get to where we are today, for the universe to be as fine-tuned as it is today, um, for life to emerge, for, of, of course, there's a lot of talk about the Big Bang, which I think theologians have said for thousands of years, but where did it come from, and so on and so forth. So it seems like the amount of lucky breaks, I don't know if you'd want to touch on this as a mathematician, um, but it just seems like that that's inconceivable. Well, I don't know if it's inconceivable. Look, the, the idea that we, you and I, noble as we are, we are, undoubtedly noble as we are, um, have emerged in the cosmos as, a, as the result of a very long sequence of lucky breaks. In one sense, it's obviously true. I mean, had things been slightly different in your past, you wouldn't be here today. By your past, I mean your past. Sure. Um, it also provides an explanation for an otherwise very mysterious fact um, that has increasingly been noticed over the last 50 years. And that is that we, as human beings, hey, we really seem to be alone in the universe. With all efforts to make contact with one of those dazzling alien civilizations have been a failure. And all <laughs> efforts on their part to make contact with us have been a failure as well. Well, that's an astonishing fact. The, the physicist Enrico Fermi posed this as a paradox in 1952, sitting at lunch with a group of other physicists convinced that there was lots of alien civilizations out there. And he said, no, so where are they? And nobody's been able to answer that. If, on the other hand, you are partial to the idea that everything that's emerged on this planet has been the result of a very long sequence of lucky breaks, and that the evolution of an intelligent species like our own is almost unfathomably improbable, then you have an answer to Fermi's, Fermi's question. We haven't heard from them because they're not there. We are alone in the universe because it's so unlikely. Our emergence is so unlikely. It's a very satisfactory answer. It's kind of a depressing answer, but it's a satisfactory answer anyway. So this is, uh, this is a, a, we're in the realm of conjecture, and these conjectures turn in any number of ways. They provide a very interesting explanation for our apparent solitude. Ain't nobody else out there. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's interesting enough. And of course, that's, that's uh, I think the idea of terrestrial beings, of aliens, has just gotten, it's always kind of been popular, but especially in the last few years, it seems like it's just drawn a lot of interest, which kind of, uh, I, I think, makes me think about the multiverse theory. I don't know how, how into new superhero movies and stuff like that you are, but the layperson seems to be very interested in this multiverse theory. Um, and, and in my opinion, it seems to just be a kind of, a kind of way to buy time because you can say, well, uh, another universe created this universe, but then you don't have to explain where the other universe came from. Um, and, and so what are your, uh, I guess, your thoughts on the multiverse theory? Do you think there is any, uh, any credibility to it? And why do you think it's so popular? Well, I don't know. At night, when my old war wounds ache and the four humors do battle in my spleen, I think very favorably on the idea that somewhere out in the vastness of intergalactic space, there's another universe in which 
I would not be making the same mistakes I made in this one. That gives me a great deal of comfort. Hmm. Needless to say, that's pure fantasy, and it has no scientific credibility whatsoever. Okay, so that that pretty straightforwardly uh, answered the question, I think. Um, now, just back to Darwinism real quick. I had watched an interview from, I think you were on Fox News. That's, I think that's where I saw the interview. But you had referred to Darwinism as a secular, the secular myth. Um, and, of course, you've written the book, The Deniable Darwin. For those of you listening, highly recommended. Um, order The Deniable Darwin. But what did you mean by the secular myth? Well, look, <clears throat> if you go back to the beginning of the 19th century, about 1810, 1850, right after the French Revolution, and I'm speaking now of the United States and Western Europe and the countries they colonized as well, uh, you see the beginning of a process of secularization that has proceeded almost inexorably over the succeeding 200 years. Uh, 1820 or so, Byron could still be writing, but the poet Byron, Lord Byron, could still be writing uh, in, a, in a recognizable universe which took Christian theology as standards, comprehensible standards. The might of the Gentile unsmote by the sword has withered like snow in the glance of the Lord. He could throw out those lines and expect all of his readers completely to understand the framework in which he was discussing. Sure. 30 years later, when you get to Matthew Arnold's Dover Beach, the sea of faith can be seen and heard only at a distance, a melancholy, long, withdrawing roar as the sea of faith moves away from a shore of consciousness. A hundred years still later, we in the United States and we in, in Western Europe are living in what is overwhelmingly a secular world. Now, a secular world, and of course I count myself as secular, I'm a secular Jew, I, I've lived my life in a secular world, and I'm not about to reject it. But it does, it does present certain imponderables. That is, it lacks for basic fundamental explanations that a system of religious thought always provided. In that sense, what we have seen is um, fairly accrued 19th century theory, a mass of speculations, which Darwin published in 1859. Half fantasy, half perceptive observation has become promoted to an almost universal system of explanation with respect to human and animal life, um, with Darwinian fantasies replacing theological fantasies, um, almost inevitably because in a secular world there is a demand for secular explanations. And I think this is uh, an inexorable process, um, which is perfectly consistent with my view uh, that this particular sex secular explanation is not deeply satisfying. But that it exists, that it's a myth, that people are devoted to it, that they appeal to these theories, Darwin is not the only theory, um, makes perfect sense. I mean, what other structure of universal comprehension is accessible once you get rid of religious explanations? So is it, you, you think it's sort of, uh, it's maybe so easy to hold on to because it's, it's almost the only... I guess the only game in town, if you're not a religious believer, the only 
really thing to hold on to to give yourself some, in my opinion, even a false self, uh, a, a false sense of hope and meaning is really to hold on to Darwinism. Well, I don't think Darwinian theory gives you either hope or meaning. Those are a, those are categories alien to any scientific theory. What Agreed. I think it, it gives you is a, as a, is a good, comfy, solid feeling of having a scientific explanation where previously one had only a religious explanation. That this feeling is baseless is another issue, a different issue. But, but uh, the craving for some sort of global system of explanation is universal. It, can, it can, cannot be eliminated. Sure, that's. Uh, I, I think that's a sufficient answer. Now, uh, now this is the part of the interview I think I've been looking most forward to, probably. I, I just wanted to ask you a series of a couple of questions. And the first one here is, is science sufficient to explain away the need for the existence of God? Well, that almost, almost asks for a, for, for a, a kind of head-counting answer. Go to various science that, Go to various sophisticated scientists. We don't have to go to the sociologists or the gender studies people. Sure. Let's go to the physicists and ask them that question and take a majority vote. How many people? Are, how many people agree with the proposition? That theoretical physics is sufficient to eliminate at least a, a vagrant appeal to a deity. I think the answer would be most physicists would agree to that proposition. Most mathematicians would not. That's my guess. You, of course, were, were trying to elicit my opinion, never mind what the majority thinks. Sure. And my opinion is I'm not going there. I have nothing worthwhile to add to that. Absolutely. Now, has science explained, not, not just the, let's say, the result of the Big Bang, but has science explained the emergence of the universe with the Big Bang? No, not even close. It's a, it's a complete mystery. And it may forever remain a mystery. Don't forget, we're talking about a very long period of time, 15 billion years. And we're talking about the intersection of two theories, general relativity and quantum mechanics, which at that particular point, the initiation of the universe, don't quite cohere. And we're talking about philosophical problems that don't seem to have an obvious solution. From the point of view of theoretical physics, space and time were created with the Big Bang. They were not antecedently in existence, which in plain English means that the universe appeared out of nothing. And at that point, most of the modalities of uh, epistemological or metaphysical appreciation begin to collapse. What does that mean if it means anything? Now, would we say, of course, the universe came out of absolutely nothing? If it wasn't eternal, that means it had a beginning. Doesn't it follow? I've heard many times... No, no, no. no. You've gone off the rails too, too soon. It does not mean it had a beginning, if by that you mean a beginning in something or at some time. That's exactly what theoretical cosmology denies. You can talk about 10 years after the Big Bang, but you can't talk about 10 years Sure, before. sure. And I, I think we would have to use the term sans creation because we can't use uh, uh, any sort of tense. We, we can't, we have to use tenseless language here, right? We can't say before the creation of the universe because there is no before if the universe isn't eternal. Um, so let's say sans creation, nothing had existed, nothing physical, no matter, no time, no, no energy. Many will point to... Um, 
well, the universe came from the sea of energy or quantum fluctuation, but that's not nothing. That's a whole lot of something. No, we're ruling that out. That, that, that's all just an attempt at, at gerrymandering okay. the data. Uh, that's fair enough. It's just kind of a, a manipulation of... If, if there was a pre-existing quantum sea, as some physicists have poetically written, <laughs> then, of course, the questions at hand have simply postponed. Where'd the sea come from? Sure, sure, exactly, yeah, because now you're, that's, that's absolutely not nothing. If you're talking about the sea of energy that everything came out yeah. of, <laughs> that is certainly not nothing. Um, it almost seems like just a, a fancy word for God uh, or a creator, but... Now, let me ask you this. So, Dr. John Lennon, were you going to say something? I'm sorry. Probably, but I forgot. <laughs> okay. Uh, now, Dr. John Lennox had once said um, that science can tell you that putting cyanide in your grandmother's tea will kill her, but it can't tell you whether it's right or wrong. Um, now, kind of pivoting to morality here, can science explain morality? Is it meant to? And if not, why can't it? Well, look, I mean, 300 years ago, 250 years ago, David Hume made the obvious point, which was certainly known before Hume, but expressed very vividly by Hume and other uh, Enlightenment philosophers, that it is logically impossible to derive ought from is. That is, when we talk to the modalities, talk about the modalities, the declarative modalities, what is the case, the ethical modalities, what should ought, ought to be the case, there's a logical gap. And unless you put ethical content into your premises, you're not going to derive them from your conclusions. So in this sense, obviously, the great theories of theoretical physics are in no position to tell any of us that on being invited to dinner, it is not good to steal the spoons. That is not the project of theoretical physics. But that's not a very deep deep discovery. I mean, we, we know that there are very severe logical restrictions in what can be derived from certain kind of premises, uh, that no logical deduction really has a whole lot more than is embedded in the premises itself. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a logical deduction. So to say that art cannot be derived from is, I, I certainly agree, it can't be derived from the facia from is. And to say the sciences are not involved in embedding moral premises and the premises of their theories is certainly true. But once we've said all that, there seems to be a category mistake involved. I mean, I, I agree with John Lennox. Um, putting cyanide in grandmother's tea will certainly have a certain kind of biophysical effect. <clears throat> but it Knowing the biophysical effect will say very little about the moral conditions under which the cyanide is administered. Yeah, that's true. But did any of us really ever think otherwise? Did you? I mean, when, when struggling with the questions of, of responsibility, right and wrong, proper conduct, even matters of decorum, were you tempted to go to quantum electrodynamics for the answer? No. No, and, and I don't, I don't okay. think you can. Well, you can try all you want. I don't think it will be a success. Sure, and thinking is something we need to do more of, and, and thinking involves sometimes being wrong, many times being wrong. That's the only way we can really uh, figure things out, I think. But do you think that there is there that to your knowledge has there ever been a, I guess even a somewhat successful attempt for somebody to try to define morality uh, apart from an intelligent designer, apart from a creator? 
The Ten Commandments do a very good job of, of boiling things down to the essentials. There's no, no question about that. And, and uh, speaking as a Jew now, the code of conduct, everyday conduct, is almost 670 separate prescriptions. I mean, if you're a serious, observant, orthodox Jew, that's, you don't have time to be anything else or anything other than a serious, serious observant, orthodox Jew. Sure. So there's, there's, I think, not all that much dispute about framing the content of moral issues. Where the real dispute arises is why on earth should we respect them? Why on earth should we obey them? I think that's an aching question in contemporary life, for example. If you remove all structures of compulsion, what is left of moral life? After all, almost everyone uh, respects the law because of fear of punishment. There may be other reasons to be law-abiding, but that's not negligible. That's one of the reasons. Why don't you uh, take your car out and cruise down? Where are you, in Miami? Uh, I'm in the Tampa area. Yeah, well, why don't you get on the interstate and, and see whether your car will hit 240 miles an hour? Yeah. So what <laughs> if you're breaking the law? Uh, I think, I think if, if you respond honestly, the answer is because I don't want to get a ticket. I don't want to be caught which is a trivial example of, I think, a universal phenomenon. We obey the law, we respect the, uh, the rules, we pay heed to morality because we're afraid of the consequences of doing otherwise. So there is something built into the notion uh, of moral, a moral life that corresponds to the English expression, do it or else, which has always been part of moral life. And that do-it-or-else is imperfectly served by the law, but was served far more perfectly by the idea that there is a, a deity scrutinizing and judging your actions. Sure, but then let's say you've got somebody in power, um, just a horrible dictator, just just a terrible man, and he says, well, this was always the do-it-or-get you know, the consequences, but now I'm changing the do it or get the consequences. I'm saying you have to do what I say, um, or you get the consequences that I invoke. And then at that point, of course, there wouldn't be an actual, there would be a, uh, an action and a consequence, but there wouldn't be an actual objective right or wrong. There wouldn't be an objective do this because it's actually right. Just don't do it because of the consequences. It seems to me that there, there is no way to argue successfully that moral proscriptions, moral injunctions, moral de declarations are neither true nor false. Uh, and there's very good reason to argue that, in fact, they're either true or false, one way or the other. Um, murder is wrong is a moral declaration. It seems to me that either it's true or it's false, or it needs to be qualified. Mm -hmm. But that's true of any kind of declaration we might make. Sure. we say might be so I don't see any force to the idea that moral statements, whoever makes them, are neither true nor false. You're asking me, suppose there was some political situation in which what we knew to be true or knew to be false were violated politically by injunctions that violated our sense of what is right and what is wrong. As, for example, happened in Nazi Germany, but also in Soviet Russia. Uh, the people carrying out 
Nazi policies, many, many of them knew precisely what they were doing and knew that it was wrong. We had their testimony. Sure. Or they recognized that it was wrong. And they felt they were under compunction to do it anyway. That's a situation that recurs again and again in human history, alas. Nazi Germany is a really good example. Let me ask you this final question. In this day and age, I, I think we see some scientists uh, holding other science and scientists accountable, such as you know Stephen Meyer, uh, whose books have caused many to think differently about Darwinism and science. Your books, uh, including David Galertner coming out from Yale, who is you know denying Darwinian evolution. Is there anything that the that the average person can do to, I suppose, not just hold science and scientists accountable, but really, really try to understand the truth in, in these scientific theories. Sure, you can sit down and study them, uh, which I'm afraid is not mm -hmm. only the best answer, but the only answer. Um, I, I think there is a great deal of, of uh, give and take possible between people who are not interested in science and the more extravagant claims made by the sciences. But when it comes to a specific understanding, say, of the neo-Darwinian synthesis, well, you, you got to really take a look at mathematical genetics and see whether it makes sense to you. You can't do it, well, you can do it at second hand by buying my books and reading them. That will give you a warm, illuminating burst, for sure. Oh, yeah. But if you, if, if you want to do it with the utmost probity, you have to do it yourself. This is an immemorial answer. Second best is often just not good enough. Absolutely. And, and Dr. David Berlinski, thank you so much again for taking time out of your, your busy schedule. My pleasure. Yeah, I, I enjoyed this. I had a lot of fun in this interview, and I, I think the listeners will enjoy it as much as I did. And uh, So thank you so much for coming on. You're very welcome. You take care. Well, thank you for listening to The Universe Next Door. Please share this podcast with a friend. That is the best way to get our content out there and to continue to reach people. And keep checking back for brand new episodes with new guests during this series, The Ridiculousness of Darwinism.